Hi everyone, I'm Alicia Aberatney and welcome to NAB Digital Next. In this week's episode, we're switching things up a bit. I'm here with my colleague, Alex Garkovenko, and we're in for a treat because in a moment, we're going to hear from Brad Carr, who regular listeners would know as your host of this podcast and who also leads NAB's innovation and partnerships team. Hot off the press from his recent trip to the US, where he attended their Consumer Electronic Show, or CES, as it's known as, we get to hear Brad's top takeaways from one of the most influential global tech and innovation trade shows. Before we dive in, Brad, for those who may not know, can you tell us a bit more about CES and what it is and what drew you to attending? Well, thanks, Alicia. Look, it's it's an enormous event. It's really quite hard to grasp the scale. It's massive. It's crazy. There were varying estimates of 130,000, 150,000, 180,000 people in attendance. There were over 4,000 exhibitors. There were a lot of panels, a lot of product launches. It spans this absolutely enormous Las Vegas Convention Center, which is so enormous that Elon Musk's boring company actually has its loop prototype actually running a service to take you in Tesla's underground in a tunnel from one end to the other of the convention center. And it's and it's too big for that convention center alone. It, it spans into some of the other satellite convention centers at the back of different casinos scattered along the strip. So it's it really is just mind-boggling, really, the the scale of the event. I never thought I'd see something bigger than the Singapore FinTech Festival, but but there it is. It's been running, actually, for about 100 years. Uh, in fact, 1924 was the original of, I think in those days, it was called like the Radio Transistor Industry Group or something of that nature. And it's evolved over the years. For a time, it was increasingly known as being where the new TV screens were launched by the likes of NEC or T- TCL. Um, it became a place for personal computing product launches. More recently, I think it's been known as a bit of an auto show. Now, really, it's it's all of those things, all of the above. And that really means, I guess, that it's it's a tremendous nexus for all of the emerging trends, both those that are new products that are, are actually mature and commercialized and in market, and probably in some cases also where some firms are trying to use it to showcase the idea that might become a future product. I guess with the word consumer in the title, there is a bit of a bias towards the consumer sector, but increasingly there's a lot of industrial applications coming through as well. So it, it really is a bit of a an all-encompassing everything. Thanks, Brad. That sets the scene really well. So let's dive into it. Um, with AI dominating so many conversations right now, I've no doubt that um, it featured heavily at CES. From what you saw and heard, it would be great if you could share some of your reflections on the impact of AI for businesses and on our daily lives for the near future. Yeah, AI was absolutely dominant, and and I think the you know one thing that was striking was you know I heard a, a panel of some of the the tech policy journalists who really drew the the distinction between the rampant techno-optimism um, apparent at CES in contrast to, you know, I guess, a lot of the the fear of AI that is more pervasive in, in Washington circles and the, the calls to regulate AI. But from very much a consumer and commercialised perspective at CES, what struck me was AI everywhere in everything. And it was AI in your car, AI in your fridge, AI in all sorts of various home and personal security devices. AI in language translation devices, probably one of the coolest ones I saw was a, an example of, of eyeglasses that have a translation device built into the arm so that you could stand there and talk German to me and and it will, you know, subtly to me translate to English. It was this sense of AI embedded absolutely everywhere and everything. Um, Volkswagen announced a, a partnership with ChatGPT during the event. And so I guess I came away with this sense of 
AI is really rapidly going to be elevated as just a core expectation that that customers have. Um, that that it won't be a point of differentiator that your product is a smart product with AI in it. That will increasingly become the table stakes that you just just have to have. And I think that was probably what I found most striking in the you know, the the breadth of of representation at CES. So it's absolutely undoubtable that there have been major breakthroughs in the field of AI in recent years. Um, but some people do say that the promises for its potential are currently a bit inflated, that everyone's a bit obsessed with this in the sense that it's a hype. How can we begin to frame it in the context of hype cycles and how do we see that evolving in the near future? It's a great question, Alex, and you know I'm probably still pondering it and I'll probably actually defer you, to you more as the expert on hype cycles specifically. But the premise you make is absolutely right that you know, this was, if not nowhere to be seen, at least it was a lot quieter, a lot subtler on the AI theme just 12 months ago um, or 15 months ago. And it really has been a, a rapid emergence. And that's, we've seen other technologies go through, you know, similar cycles in the past. I think the the underlying customer utility is a lot clearer in in this particular example than it has been in some of the others. You know, if I think about, you know, crypto is one that's gone through its cycle, you know, it's it's less clear to me what real meaningful problem that was going to solve. We've seen metaverse at different times go through probably not the same level of elevation of, of cycle, but you know, I think that's a technology which you know has probably not reached its maturity threshold as yet. Whereas AI is very much having its moment. And and probably where it's having its moment is it's a technology that has actually been around for a long time. It's just that we haven't had the assembly of the massive data sets to enable it until now. Probably where I think the interesting challenge ahead is going to be around some of the dependencies, you know, in particular around the chips and around energy. Uh, and I reflect here a bit on, uh, and I posted actually recently a comment that Peter Kirsten's of the European Commission made to me a year ago that, you know, we look at AI using a lot of the same chips that crypto's used, and we look at the energy consumption associated with that. And there was somebody at uh, CES who made the point that your average crypto transaction uses the equivalent of a swimming pool's worth of water. That does, you know, Peter Kirsten's point was, it does prompt you to perhaps think around um, what are the high value use cases that actually are of sufficient value to warrant the level of energy, water, chip consumption. And I think, you know, if I wanted to be a little bit of a, a skeptic or a little bit of a, you know, perhaps circumspectual view of how the the rate and this trajectory continues. That's probably the piece I'd look most at. Thanks, Brad. That's great. And I think, um, as you've alluded to, um, the technologies showcased at CES, they often really set the tone for industry trends and developments throughout the rest of the year. Were there any emerging or noteworthy trends that caught your attention? I guess one sort of major overarching theme that I felt was an increasing uh, emphasis on resilience and continuity of service. And again, you know, I, I hate to be sort of repetitive of, of previous events, but you know, it was also that was also something we picked up at the Singapore FinTech Festival in November. This increasing sense of it's not always just about, you know, hey, how can we come up with the next cool feature, but increasingly around how can we ensure that this is actually going to work accessibly and safely and securely all of the time? And that that train of thought manifests in different ways. And, and I guess I probably have a little bit of a selection bias that subtly or subconsciously that might have been something I was looking for. But it was striking to me that you had three different firms marketing 
their solar, uh, their portable solar panels and portable generators. And and part of the attraction of that, part of the marketing of that is, you know, how you can go camping in luxury and in style. But very, very much at the forefront of all of their marketing also was this is how you ensure you've got a household backup, that when you've got a disruption to your power supply, and there was a another firm, Genesis Systems, that was marketing their water cube around water filtration on the same basis, that where you have a, a disruption to supply, you know, here is a way that you can ensure continuity, whether at a household scale or an industrial scale. Um, and I think that's just a recognition that you know, how do we how do we continue? How do we have that continuity? How do we ensure that we've got ongoing service supply resilience? I think is just an increasing theme. Probably also link it a little bit with you know, the the forms of three D printing that were on display were less about some of the cool cutting edge consumer luxuries that you might have seen three, four, five years ago in three D printing, and now more around industrial parts, medical devices, and the like. And that, again, I think just sort of, in my head at least, that reinforces a bit of this theme that we see from, you know, people like Peter Zeehan or also there was a great piece by the the New Zealand uh, Trade Department recently around, you know, we might see both from geopolitics and from environmental factors, you know, a lot of new disruptions to supply chains in the future, whether it's to Peter Zeehan's point around shipping lanes and the like, and we've already seen some of that with the Red Sea, the things that we've seen through the COVID years. That there may be a need to rapidly stand up a domestic industry in a field that we don't currently have at some stage, or we may need to be able to quickly procure or produce parts and medical devices that we can't otherwise. And and seeing some of these three D printing firms stepping into that space, to me, was just sort of reinforcing that notion of, you know, we need to be thinking about security and continuity probably more so than we have in the past. Uh, and maybe one final point I'll make to that is is seeing there was a, there was a digital identity panel and a, and a financial services panel, and they talked across those a bit about something called Leakmas, where a bunch of hackers were getting together in December and having a having a big forum where they went and shared all of the bits of partial information that they'd they'd hacked and enabling that to be put together so they can get a bigger picture of your identity or of your behavioural patterns, the crooks sharing information on mass. And also you had the the view from Michelle Alt, formerly of the um, the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, making the point that you know, really fintech and innovation is increasingly going to be about security. And as, as she put it, um, the boring is the new sexy. So I sort of strung those, you know, maybe there was a little bit of an undercurrent theme I saw in a few different ways that kind of reinforced to me that, you know, the role of innovation is not necessarily around the coolest new feature, but increasingly, you know, in the current landscape that we have globally at the moment, it's going to be about innovation to ensure safety and security, safer experiences for our customers, re- resilience and continuity of service. Thanks, Brad. That's that's really interesting. And I think that theme of resilience you've alluded to resonates well, particularly as today is Safer Internet Day. And for those who don't know what that is, Safer Internet Day is a global initiative directed at raising awareness of online safety issues. And it definitely sounds like there has been a shift towards a strong focus on topics of cybersecurity and privacy, particularly within industry circles at CES. And I think that's something that's really good to see mm. and reflect the way in which sort of consumer sentiment can um, drive changes. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. I guess changing course a bit now, Brad, um, it would be great to hear if there are any technologies or products on display that surprised you. Maybe surprised me in the sense of of a couple of particular examples of things that I've probably been sceptical about in the past and and I see them maturing to a point where the the commercial value is, is more obvious or apparent now. 
One of those is around the glasses, smart glasses and wearables. Yeah, and I noticed a year ago you saw, you know, people like uh, Mike Bechtel, the chief futurist at, at Deloitte, commenting around, you know, one of his takeaways of CES was this move towards the the post-screen world or the post-glass world, and that it would be about, you know, things that we see in our glasses rather than carrying around our phones, you know, phones or iPads. And and I struggled with that mainly because, you know, perhaps I'm thinking of the old ugly Google glasses and those initial prototypes that. You know, I think anything that's got a fashion element to it is going to have a a much slow, slower, more difficult adoption curve. So, with that notion, or with that, you know, I guess thought in the back of my head, it was interesting to see the likes of Carrera and Ray Bans coming to the fore now and and being at the the center of some of these these new releases. You know, Carrera in partnership with Amazon on on One Piece. Ray-Bans also doing the the translation devices that I mentioned earlier. Um, they also had a one that was for a very subtle hearing aid that could be embedded in the arms of the glasses. So I think you see the entry of those big fashion brands, big eyewear brands, I think, you know, perhaps catalyzes the emergence of that type of wearable in a way like Mike Bechtel was expecting and, and that I've been skeptical about. So that was one piece I thought that was striking in terms of a, a new idea maturing. Maybe I'll put alongside that you know, some of the metaverse and, and virtual reality and augmented reality, probably the augmented part was what most stood out for me. Again, I've probably been a bit sceptical. Back on the, our first episode of Nav Digital Next, we had Neil Cross, the former chief innovation officer at DBS, use the phrase, make it worse, as his moniker for metaverse. I'll probably share some of his scepticism, but I've probably seen it more as a, a field that, you know, has most been utilised or promoted in the gaming space. But I was really struck by a company called Metavu, a Korean company that were demonstrating augmented reality uh, solutions where, you know, for somebody that's needing to find things in a warehouse or somebody that's needing to assemble different industrial parts or somebody that is perhaps unclear on an assembly or disassembly item and they need to con- um, get direct help desk support. The notion of this augmented reality, and it's and you know, it's a helmet that's got the you know, the visuals on it, but at the same time, you're actually still in the physical world, in the human world, moving around in the human world. It really struck me as a, a very effective complement, you know, particularly in those those industrial settings. So, you know, I probably took away a bit of a, you know, perhaps a renewed sense of, of belief that that opportunity might have legs. Maybe not for all of the applications that it was initially envisaged, but that augmented reality, you know, augmented more so than virtual, that complement of, where this can add to the the human physical world, that was one I found quite striking. Our conversation has obviously been based around hot trends and things that showed up prominently in CES. But is there a flip side to that? Is there anything obviously that's stepped out of the limelight this year? You've mentioned a few that maybe have gone out of the, the media's attention, such as digital assets to some extent, but are there any that were obviously not present? And maybe more importantly, how does this impact how we should be thinking about these topics currently? One thing that was interesting, and maybe it's the nature of CES and that it is you know, consumer electronics as opposed to a lot of the the fintech and financial services events that we more naturally gravitate to. But it was conspicuous to me that there wasn't really anything directly explicitly about payments. Now, that said, I think payments is there and payments is everywhere implicitly or in an embedded format. And if I go back to that, you know, where I started around AI and, and AI being everywhere and everything, inherently there is a payments linkage or a payments reliance within that. And so you'd see demonstrations of how 
Uber Eats, your personal AI agent would engage with Uber Eats to, because it knows what you want and it knows when you want it and it knows where you're going to be at a particular point in time and where it should arrange delivery to. And of course, it's got to pay for that. And similarly, there were other agents that were really smart around whether it's enabling your next investment or booking your next holiday or whatever it might be. And in each of those scenarios, the you know, the AI is is dependent not only on the data sets that train it, not only on the energy and the chips and the water and so forth that we talked about, but it's also been to actually be able to facilitate and execute. It's reliant on having some sort of payment mechanism that you have previously configured or instructed to, to make that. And so I think that's, you know, to some extent, you know, payments was not there in the sense that it was not there as a headline item. It wasn't there on a banner. You know, I didn't see anybody exhibiting payment solutions, but payments is everywhere and payments is embedded. And, you know, Alex, the you know, the second premise of your question, I think is really valid in terms of, of how we think about it. Yeah, you know, I wonder whether this rise of AI means that we're going to need to look at open banking, in, in particular, the, the action initiation or payment initiation part of it, and also digital wallets, you know, whether we might need to look at those in a different way. And that this growing emergence of AI being embedded and increasingly being expected, as I'm forecasting, AI being expected in every consumer product and every consumer operation interaction, then really you know, the ability to be able to, to seamlessly make the payment means it may be you know, a renewed catalyst for open banking. It may mean that, that how the CFPB's draft open banking regulation in the US and how that galvanizes the big US firms, you know, that might be a really significant piece to watch, as well as you know, what's happening in wallets, both Apple and the the current developments in Europe around you know the extent to which the NFC chip is opened, also the extent to which EIDAS2 drives identity wallets and how the identity wallet and payment wallet pieces come together. I think that's going to be, you know, those developments in our industry may be amplified by some of, of what's, what happens at the AI customer interface. Thanks, Brad. Now, as a final question, casting your gaze more into the distant future, were there any innovations you found particularly exciting? Some very cool things that, you know, maybe they're they're a bit too far ahead, and they're things that you know I probably consider a bit too speculative for for me to go and invest in myself. But nevertheless, things that do stand out that you do look at and think, yeah, this will be part of the future at some point. On our last episode here, we had Andy Hines, of a futurist at the University of Houston, talk about how change is slower than you think. And I'm sure some of the proponents of these developments would think that they're going to change the world in the next three or four years. One that was aimed in particular at, at the Los Angeles Olympics in 2028, when I can see they're on the right track. I can see it's going to happen, but it's going to take longer. And the first of those, probably the most striking, was the electric air taxis. There were some some uh, some very cool developments in that space and a great prototype on display from Supernal, which is a, a Hyundai subsidiary. And I was privileged to be able to you know, go and inspect that close up. Also to understand a bit of how the, the route mappings will work. And they had that you know, demonstrated across the Los Angeles area. You know, broadly, that they won't be just filling the skies and flying all over suburbia, but they'll be largely flying direct corridors over the interstate freeways and the like. So I think those, you know, there is there's some very, you know, some some very thought provoking developments in that space that you know I think in time will be you know a significant part of the future. The hydrogen at scale, and I think you know there wasn't I didn't actually get a strong sense of of an energy focus beyond the pieces I mentioned earlier around the, the portable solar panels. There are also some really interesting developments around like subtle looking solar panels that are built into the side of a briefcase or from the, the strap that goes over your head on, on headphones. 
but hydrogen was probably the one other area of power that, that did have some emphasis and mainly from the big auto manufacturers. And I do think that's a big part of the future, albeit it's it's not really uh, done well at scale at this point. Those are probably the ones that most stood out for me as to, to what's coming. And of course, the other one on transport was just where I started being able to actually take the uh, the loop, the boring company's loop under the convention centre. They've now built that to, I think it were five stations scattered around the convention centre and also two other nearby hotels that are all linked up in that network. They're going to add tunnels to three more hotels through the course of this year. And they've got a, a master plan where ultimately it will go underneath you know, all of the Las Vegas Strip and out to the airport and so on. So that becomes a real alternative public transport method. And I don't know that it's going to work in most places or at least in established cities where you know, perhaps the, the other methods are more entrenched. But it's thought-provoking and, and I can see that it will work in Vegas. I think maybe one other final reflection I'll share is uh, there was a really, probably the quote that most resonated with me through the week was from NVIDIA's Neil Trevitt. And he was reflecting a bit on, to the point around hype cycles, really, in the, you know, where you raised earlier, Alex, the question around, you know, where AI is at and how this compares to other hype cycles, perhaps. And his observation was that the history of hype cycles has really been that the focus moves on from one thing onto the next. And when it goes on to the next, the common reaction is to assume that everything stops on the old thing. And as he put it, it's the trail of broken dreams when actually the reality is that that old thing doesn't actually go away. And the reality is that other people or people are still working on it and it does continue. And I thought that was just a really prescient reminder. And Alex, I know that that you know in, a, in an upcoming episode here on Nab Digital Next, you're going to explore more into this space of, of hype cycles. It's an area you've worked a lot on. You know, just interested in whether Neil's quote is one that strikes or resonates with you. Oh, absolutely, Brad. And I actually find it really fascinating to begin to focus on things that people lose interest in, which is partially why I asked you about what wasn't covered. And I've personally heard quite a few people mentioning that actually it becomes a really good flush when people start to not be as excited about something because you start to lose all of the unnecessary pieces, things that could never happen and actually begin to get to the the core of something. And knowing that research continues you're only just going to know that that core is going to become stronger and more reliable. And so the next time a trend raises its head, maybe that hype actually becomes even more more valid. So in, in your case, you mentioned payments weren't maybe as exciting, which means that I will personally be keeping a much closer look on, on the space because who knows what's going to happen next. I think we could go on chatting for hours, but this brings us to the end of our discussion. I think firstly, I want to say a huge thank you to you, Brad, for sharing your reflections and takeaways. There have been so many fantastic insights, but if I were just to highlight a few that stood out for me, I think one would be the way in which technology and AI, as you say, is being increasingly embedded in every aspect of our daily life and what this will mean for the way in which we expect or come to expect to deal with our service providers, including financial services providers and banks. As someone with a privacy and security bent and a regulatory bent, I think the way in which we can use innovation to enable safer experiences, as you say, for our customers and communities is something that's really important. And then making sure we get those high value use cases, which are underpinned by 
principles of sustainability into the future. Things like um, the energy tech and also some of the med tech devices, I think they're really worthwhile and actually will enhance people's lives. So that's really great to see that there's a focus on that. I think Alex's comments and, and insights around hype cycles, that's something that we all have to keep front of mind. And as um, leaders in innovation and business more generally, understanding how to navigate those hype cycles and, and make sure we take the benefits of these technologies for, for our customers and communities. Again, thanks to Brad and Alex for this great conversation and stay tuned for our next episode of NAB Digital Next, where Brad is going to team up with NAB's payments head, Shane Conway, in speaking with Tim Renew of Banked and make sure you keep an eye out for a future episode we'll be doing on Hype Cycles where Alex will delve further into this concept through the lens of Gen AI and other emerging technologies. Thanks everyone. Thanks Alicia.